Today we begin a much-anticipated study of 1 John. We're going to be in 1 John for the next several months. And I've been saying now for several weeks, I'm going to do something different this study. I am not going to put my main text each week on the screen above because I want you to bring your Bible. Now, don't worry. If I quote some passage in Ezekiel, I will put it on the screen. If I quote some version of 1 John that isn't out of the NIV for uh, illustration purposes, I'll put it on the screen. But each week, I'll read a text out of the NIV version, and I want you to have a Bible in front of you and study with me. Now, we know some of you don't have Bibles or don't have NIV Bibles. And so we have purchased a bunch of new Bibles that you see in the pews today. Uh, The text is a little small. So if you may want to get a bigger print text, if you can't read it well, or just let your kids translate for you. Now, please leave these Bibles in the pews. If you would like a Bible, we have a Bible just like this at the hub. We'll give it to you, but leave these Bibles in the auditorium. But each week, we're going to turn to the text. We're going to do it like we did when we were little. We're going to open our Bibles, and we're going to read and study together. And so if you've got one of these Bibles... Turn to page 680. Okay? That is 680. Always wanted to do that. And we're going to begin together now our study of 1 John. Keep your Bible open because we're going to be looking all over 1 John today as I give you an introduction to this great letter. Now, let me start with this story of this young artist who was excited because he got a chance to take a lot of his paintings to this gallery for a showing. And a couple of weeks later, he went down to see the gallery director to ask how it was going. He said, well, I've got good news and bad news. The good news is a man came in the other day and asked me if I thought that your paintings would appreciate in value after you were dead. And I said, yes, they would. And he bought all your paintings. And the young man said, what's the bad news? He said, well, that man was your doctor. Now, it's very rare for a person to know that he's about to pass from life to death. It should not be rare for a Christian to know that they have passed from death to life. And John wrote this epistle so that we would not be in the dark about that question. Now, I know we live in an age where ambiguity is in style. Where you're not supposed to have a sure conviction about anything. But someone forgot to tell John. He writes with bold certainty and calm surety. And 36 times in five chapters, he's going to say, we know. Not we think, we suppose, we hope. He's going to say, we know. Because he's writing in black and white to a church In a gray funk. A church in need of some bright ideas. And the message is timeless because the church in every age needs to lighten up. Let me explain. There was a dark cloud over John's church and the readers of this first letter. They were being unsettled by teachings of a group of people that John is going to call deceivers and false prophets and even anti Christ. In fact, look at chapter 2, verse 26. He says, I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. 
So John's readers are hearing some things being taught that are leading them away from what John had taught. The interesting thing is this group is not a bunch of intruders. They're secessionists. In other words, they're not people on the outside trying to get in. They're people on the inside who've gone out. Look at verse 19 of chapter 2. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. Now, this group claimed to be enlightened. And when they left... They threw the church that stayed behind into a lot of uncertainty and doubt. And they began to wonder, well, now they used to be a part of us, but they say they've learned things we don't know yet. They say they know things that make them more enlightened. It makes me wonder, do I really know everything I need to know? It even makes me wonder, am I really a Christian or am I not? And John is writing to these people. Remember in his gospel he said, I write these things so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. So he wrote the gospel to arouse faith. But he wrote the epistle to assure faith. To bring some truths that we can be certain of out into the light. And he starts by reminding his church not to be disturbed by defectors because they never were true believers in the first place. Now, this is a very important point that confuses a lot of people and causes the church to get a lot of of slander it doesn't deserve. There are people that become new Christians and they come into a church and they see people that behave in ways that are not Christ-like and it upsets them. I thought this is not what Christians were like. There are people on the outside that look at people that go to church. And they know what they live like Monday through Saturday. And they say, that just proves that Christians are all hypocrites. Not necessarily. What John is saying is the church has always had pretenders. The church has always had people in it that aren't really of it. Maybe you heard the story about the uh, guy who's behind a lady at the red light. And she's putting on makeup. And the light turns green and she doesn't go. And he's upset and he starts screaming at her and honking his horn. And a few seconds later he hears a siren behind him and a red light flashing. And a policeman has pulled him over and put him in handcuffs. And he's yelling, you can't arrest me for yelling at a lady. And a couple of hours later he's released from the police station, told he can go home. And he said, I told you you couldn't do that. You haven't heard the end of this. And the policeman said, I didn't arrest you for yelling at that lady. I saw you screaming at her, and I'm thinking to myself, what a jerk. Then I saw that cross hanging from the rearview mirror. I saw that Choose Life license plate tag. I saw that Jesus is coming soon bumper sticker. I saw that fish symbol on your trunk, and I thought, that guy must have stolen that car. (laughs) First John is written. To reveal the difference between real and bogus Christians. Let me say that again. Over and over for the next three months, we're going to talk about how to tell the difference between a real Christian and a pretender. And John has some bright ideas on how to tell the difference. What we're going to see today as we overview the book is John says there are three things you can know. Three things you can be sure of that a real Christian can stand on. Here's number one. You can be sure of the identity of your Savior. 
Now, I know we live in a day where it's an insult to say to somebody, you're dogmatic. Well, that's not an insult if it's something worth being dogmatic about. And the identity of Jesus is such a thing. Christianity is more than just a bunch of ideas. It is about something unique that God has done in history in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And so you can't be fuzzy about Jesus and be a Christian. Okay? There's a lot of people out there and they're very moral people. They're very nice, decent people and they have a place for Jesus. But it's not what the New Testament says. The Mormons say he was a polygamous man who became a God and you can do the same thing. That's not what the New Testament says. Jehovah's Witnesses say he was created by God. He was not the creator of all things. He was a created thing. That's not what the New Testament says. The Buddhists say he was a great moralist. The Muslims say he was a prophet. Listen to what John says, chapter 5 and verse 5. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. You see, in John's day, there was a philosophy that goes all the way back to Plato that dominated the ancient world. It was the idea that everything matter was evil and only the Spirit was good. And consequently, there's no way God could ever become a man. Now, maybe a spirit entered Jesus at his baptism and left before the cross. But there's no way that God was in the flesh hanging on a cross. Now listen to what John says about that. Look at chapter 4 with me, verse 2 and 3. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist which you have heard is coming, and even now is already in the world. Now John's going to contend in this letter that you can be very sure about who Jesus is because God has made it clear. And he's done it in two primary ways. Number one, through the internal witness of the Holy Spirit. In fact, he's going to use a beautiful word in chapter 2, the anointing. You have been anointed with the Holy Spirit, so that you can know whether teaching about Jesus is true or false. And the other thing God has done, He has given you the testimony of the apostles themselves, what they saw and heard, they wrote down and gave to you. In fact, that's how He starts the book. We'll look at this verse next week, but look at the very first verse of First John. Chapter 1, that which was from the beginning which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked at, our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. John says, we're not passing on to you secondhand knowledge. We're not sharing with you rumors about Jesus. We were there, we saw him, we held him, we heard him, we touched him. That's what you're getting. What we're saying is this. John says, nobody is going to be able to stand before God and say, if Jesus was your son, why didn't you say so? If Jesus was your son, why didn't you give us a clue? Why didn't you leave us some evidence? John says he has. In the apostolic witness and in the Holy Spirit, God has gone on undeniable record of who Jesus is, and you can be sure about it. Look at chapter 5, verse 9 through 12. 
we accept man's testimony. But God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God which he's given about his son. Anyone who believes in the son of God has this testimony in his heart. Anyone who does not believe God has made him out to be a liar. Because he's not believed the testimony God has given about his son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. And he who has the son has life. And he who does not have the son does not have life. God has made sure that nobody has to be in the dark about who Jesus was. And you can be sure of the identity of your Savior. The second thing you can be sure of, John says, is the certainty of your conversion. Because John wants you to know, not hope, he wants you to know whether or not you've been born again. And to that end, he's going to give us three tests, and he's going to come back to them over and over. He's not going to do it like, here, test number one's in chapter one, test number two's in chapter two. He's going to write like a spiral. He's going to come back to them over and over and over. And here are the three tests. We've already mentioned the first one. It's the doctrinal test. Do you believe Jesus is the Son of God? It's the question we ask anybody who wants to place membership in this church. First question we ask them, what do you believe about Jesus? It's the question we ask anybody who wants to be baptized. What do you say about Jesus? A true Christian will never reduce and never replace Jesus. Jesus is not one of many. Jesus is the one and only. Look at chapter 4, verses 13 through 15. We know... Just get you a marker and underline every time that phrase shows up in 1 John. We know that we live in Him. And He in us. Because He's given us of His Spirit. And we've seen and testified the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God. God lives in Him. And He in God. In another place, Paul says, you can't really say Jesus is Lord and mean it unless you have the Holy Spirit. That's the doctrinal trust. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? And then there's a moral test. We're going to see it over and over in this book. Are you walking in the light? John says how we behave indicates whether we really believe. That Christianity is not just having the right information. You can come to church every week and be doctrinally orthodox. You can put the right answer down on any question about the Bible and still be a pretender. Because Christianity is not about having the right information. It's about experiencing the right transformation. You've all seen that bumper sticker, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. Well, it doesn't go far enough. We're not just forgiven. Christians are not just forgiven We're changed. We're different. Christ comes in. And holiness comes out. Look at chapter 2 with me. Verse 3 through 6. We know that we have come to know him. If we obey his commands. The man who says I know him. But does not do what he commands. Is a liar. And the truth is not in him. 
But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. And this is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Look at chapter 3, verse 6. He says, no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Now, please understand, and we'll make this clear in the next few weeks. John is not saying that if you're a real Christian, you never sin. He says you don't keep on sinning. He's not talking perfection. He's talking progress. He's saying that no real Christian is going to excuse or deny a consistent pattern of disobedience that the Holy Spirit has brought out into the light. If you are a real Christian, as you grow in Christ, you are going to increasingly find sin to be distasteful. And you're going to find obedience to be delightful. And you're going to find confidence in the obvious change. It's going to be divine testimony in your heart that you've been born again. Because the things you used to say and the things you used to do and the things you used to be are repugnant to you now. And suddenly you're wanting to say new things and to do new things and to be a new person. William Barclay tells a great story in one of his commentaries about a man in England who worked in a warehouse and he was an alcoholic. He was so addicted to booze he would get his check every week on Friday. He'd go buy liquor and have no money to take home to his family. To the degree that even at their house they hardly had any furniture in it. Because they had no money. But this guy becomes a Christian. And his life starts to change. Well now he goes to the warehouse where nobody is a Christian. And they immediately began to mock him. They make fun of him. They say don't tell me you believe all that nonsense. Nobody believes the Bible is true anymore. He says, what do you mean? All those stories in there. You can't believe those stories. Like Jesus turned water into wine. You don't think that happened, do you? Now, he's a new Christian. He doesn't even know that story. And he says, I don't know if Jesus turned water into wine. I do know at my house he's turning beer into furniture. Because a real Christian is a changed and changing person. Chapter 3, 9 and 10. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he's been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God. Nor is anyone who does not love his brother. And that's the third test. It's the social test. Do you love your brother? Love is the single greatest proof of inner change. When you find yourself having a deepening love for people that in your flesh you wouldn't want to love. It is evidence that you have had a resurrection. That's what he says in chapter 3 verse 14. We know that we've passed 
from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. See, John would say, I don't care how much they come to church. I don't care how orthodox they say they are. If they don't love people, they're bogus. They're pretenders. They're still in death. Look at chapter 4, 7, and 8. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. And whoever does not love does not know God. Because God is love. And in verse 12, he says, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. Let me tell you something. The devil wants you to doubt if you've been born again. God doesn't. God doesn't want anybody in this church to wonder whether or not you're a Christian. He wants you to know. John says you can be certain of the identity of your Savior and you can be certain of the certainty of your conversion. And one more thing, you can be sure of the security of your salvation. Now I know what some of you are thinking. I don't always pass the moral and social test. I don't always walk in the light like I should. I don't always love my brother as I should. Hey, I joined the club, neither do I. That's why we need to hear the rest of the story. Famous preacher H.I. Ironside was with a man one time who was sick and about to die. And he says, I'm not ready to die. I don't know if all my sins have been forgiven. And Ironside said, suppose an angel had showed up and said to you, all your sins have been forgiven. Would that make you feel better? He said, yeah. He said, and then what if just before you died, that angel showed up again and said, I'm the devil as a masquerade. And I just said that to fool you. He said, you don't need the word of a devil, you need the word of God. And he turned to 1 John 5, 13 and read that man this verse. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Now let me ask you this question. How many of your sins were in the future when Jesus died on the cross? Every one of them. Do you really think any of your failures has ever shocked God? Has God ever went, whoa, I didn't see that coming. (laughs) Does God have to pretend you're something you're not so that he can love you? No. That's what John is going to say. God knows all things and he loves you. Look at chapter 3, 19 and 20. This then is how we know we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in His presence whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts and He knows everything. See, God knows your best isn't good enough. God knows that you need a Savior. And so God sent one. Chapter 2, 1 and 2 are two of my favorite verses in all the Bible. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He's the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Chapter 2, verse 12. I write to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account 
of His name. John knows that we are not going to be perfected until the Lord Jesus returns. He says in chapter 3 that when we see Him, we'll be like Him. But until then, we're making progress in holiness. We're not going to get there. But John says, you and I have an advocate who's never lost a case. And the real issue is not how much have you sinned, but how much did you trust God's answer for your sin? You can know that you have eternal life. Jim Cott, you baseball buffs will remember, was an all-pro pitcher. He was also a very committed Christian. And he was asked one time, how does being a Christian affect your performance on the field? He said, well, I'll give you an example. Two weeks ago, I'm in a big game. We need to win it to have a chance for the playoffs. Ninth inning, I've got one more batter to get out. And I remember thinking, I'm glad my destiny doesn't rest on this next pitch. It's a good thing to know that your destiny rests in the sufficiency of Christ, who is our advocate. Now, Satan doesn't want you to know that. He didn't want you to know who Jesus is. He didn't want you to know if you've been born again. He didn't want you to know whether or not you're going to heaven. He wants you to be in the dark about all those things. But John wants you to lighten up. Look at chapter 5, how he ends the book. Verse 19. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true. Even in His Son, Jesus Christ, He is the true God and eternal life. My brothers and sisters, the church has always been plagued by bogus Christianity. But you do not need to let that disturb and upset and unsettle your own walk with God. Because here's the truth it always comes to light who's really in the sun. That's what John is saying. At the end of the day, the real and the bogus Christian will be revealed. And it'll always come to light who's really in the sun. Like, for example, this picture of the guy I want you to look at right now. That's Kurt Warner. He's about to play a pretty big football game today. Probably in the last two weeks, at least 20 times, people have sent me an email called Curtis the Stock Boy. And it goes like this, that he was a stock boy and he met this girl at the grocery store and they fell instantly in love, but she had a Down syndrome child. It goes on and on. It's a wonderful story, but it's just full of errors. It's not true. Curtis and Brenda Warner didn't meet at a grocery store. They met in a country bar in 1992. They didn't marry a year later. They married five years later. And that boy didn't have Down syndrome. He wasn't a second child. He was the first. It's full of errors. And it's sad because the truth of the matter is his real testimony is better than the error. He went to Northern Iowa, tried to out for the Green Bay Packers, got cut. It is true that he worked for a while in a grocery store as a stock boy. Played arena football, played football in Europe. He met Brenda. They were dating some. Brenda was an ex-Marine. She had two children. The oldest, her son, was not born with Down syndrome. He was born a completely healthy little boy. 
But as a little boy, his father dropped him on his head. And he was severely damaged. Detached both, or both his retinas. He's legally blind. They didn't know if he'd ever walk or talk. He can walk and talk. He can't see. And she had these two children. She's living on food stamps. And she incurred her dating. And they dated several years. And the important part of the story is in 1996, Kurt Warner became a Christian. And Brenda did too. When I say become a Christian, I don't say they started going to church. I mean he became a Christian. He jumped in all the way. He married Brenda in 1997, adopted her two children. Since then, they've had several more. And you know what happened in the football career. He went from obscurity to being MVP of the league, MVP of the Super Bowl. When he won the Super Bowl, the very first thing he said was, Thank you, Jesus. And his 10-year-old son, Zachary, who was blind, gave him a note that said, You're as good a dad as you are a quarterback. And ever since then, Brenda and he have gone around the world to military bases and to refugee camps spreading the news of Jesus. He is the real deal. And he's who I'm rooting for today. And I was going to say right now, if you're rooting for the hated Steelers, you are a bogus Christian. I said, I said that last night. I'm not making this up. This guy comes down. This older man comes down. He is wearing a number seven Ben Roethlisberger Pittsburgh jersey and says to me, now in two weeks I want to get baptized. Can I get baptized wearing this jersey? I rebuked him and told him to go to another church. No, I didn't do that. I suppose you can root for the Steelers and go to heaven. But here's what I do know. John says, you don't have to live in the dark about the great questions of life. I'm not saying as a Christian you're going to ever figure it all out. None of us will. But you can know who Jesus is. You can know if you've been born again. And you can know if your salvation is eternally secure. And some of you today need to do exactly what Kurt Warner did in 1996. You need to stop pretending, jump in the deep end, and get real with Jesus Christ. I think that is a bright idea. So I'm going to pray about it right now. And so, Father, in Jesus' name, I pray that you would deliver us from all pretense, all fakery, all pretending, that we will get real about our faith and our walk in Jesus Christ, that we will walk in the light, that we will shine his light to the world, that we will live with certainty in a world that isn't sure about anything. We look forward to this study, God. Open our ears and our hearts to be penetrated by your truth. And if there is anything going on in our life that is in the dark, God, give us the courage in the weeks ahead to bring it into the light. We pray this for the glory and honor of the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's all stand up, please. We're going to sing a song, and as we sing, if you would like to be baptized into Jesus, if you're ready to tell this whole room that you believe He's the Son of God, you just come on down to the front.
And if you would like someone to pray for you today, would you go back to the chapel, even as we sing about what we are sure of?